Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, entitled, Stand Firm in Unity. Let me take this opportunity to invite you to come and to worship with us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we would love that opportunity to meet you, to worship together, to just share our lives and get to know one another better. Let me encourage you to go to calvaryfayetteville.com if you have any questions, find out more about the church, and you can also email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study through the book of Philippians with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's listen together. Well, we have heard the gospel this morning already, and we have sung it to one another and to the Lord. Let me say to you, I know that we have several guests today, and, and perhaps this is a, a word of explanation that we want to make also to our members. I realize that uh, from Sunday to Sunday that we sing uh, some songs that may um, be um, unfamiliar to you. Uh, I know that uh, it wasn't that long ago that some of these songs and their melodies were unfamiliar to any of us. And uh, you may not um, find that some of these um, newly written hymns being sung in a lot of churches, although that is increasing, and I'm thankful for that. But we are not a praise and worship style of music singers here. We're not singing a lot of the songs that you might hear on a local Christian station. Neither are we um, a church that holds on to uh, maybe the songs, a lot of the songs that we have grown up with that are familiar to us. We usually have one, maybe two of those Songs today, we sing, I am thine, O Lord. I I don't remember how young I was when I first heard that song and sang it. And and the words come back naturally to us. Um, But we're singing a lot of songs that that are newer. And that's not to leave anybody out. But understand this. Through the history of the church, uh, anytime there's been significant revival significant moves of the Lord. And certainly we are in need of that today, not just Calvary Church, but the church in America in particular needs to see a move of God. But throughout the church, church's history of 2,000 years or so since the New Testament, um, the work of God and the new moves of God in power have always been accompanied with newer music being written. Not a newer message, but the old, old gospel message, uh, maybe with newer melodies and um, words that initially were unfamiliar. And that's how many of our songs that we grew up with came into existence. And there are some hymns being written today that are extremely powerful. So you will find more familiar music, perhaps, somewhere else. You may find, um, uh, certainly you will find some very um, uplifting, maybe, at least emotionally, a lot of praise and worship music other places. But I will say to you, you will never worship anywhere where you will find the message of the music being more true to the gospel than you will find right here at Calvary Baptist Church. We are very careful. We are very careful to curate our songs, to go through them word by word, to be certain that everything you hear by way of melody and singing is true to the word of God. And the reason for that is because we're committed to the truth in every way possible. We want to be. But words, the gospel, 
put to music has an extreme degree of power in our lives. Uh, just music does, for good or for bad. And so we want the truths that we uh, preach to be the truths that we sing. It's not about trying to make you feel good, although I hope and pray that the gospel does affect you that way. It is about communicating the truth that sometimes may be difficult for us to hear, but that we so desperately need to hear. Now let me give you a brief commercial. I don't like to take time to do this, but because I believe it is uh, uh, so important, uh, I, I want you to hear it uh, from me. You've seen in the worship guide last week and this week that on, that on October the 15th, three weeks from today, we're going to be having our next uh, Discover Calvary uh, new member orientation. And I want to say uh, to those of you that are not yet members of our church fellowship, did you get the subtlety of that? That are not yet members of our fellowship. I want to say to you that that name may be a little bit misleading. Uh, you don't have to be a new member or you don't have to commit yourself to be a new member to participate in this uh, new member orientation. It's a time of discovery. It's a time to find out what it means to be a member here. Now, we start it during the Sunday school hour. And so if you um, would like to attend that, uh, we'd love for you to. Uh, and you need to let us know so that we can communicate with you. It'll start during the Sunday school hour. Then we will come to worship. And then as soon as worship is over, we will have a delightful meal for you at no cost to you. I promise. You'll be a good meal right here at the church. And we will complete that orientation sometime around 2 o'clock or 2.15, at the very latest 2.30. And uh, there's no obligation on your part. You can come and get questions answered. You can ask anything about Calvary uh, Baptist Church or our ministry or our history that you want to ask. We have some things we'd like to share with you about what it means to be a member here. And uh, we, we would really hope that you would attend. Uh, but we do need to know if you're coming in the preparation of food and, and materials. So uh, if you would, if you do want to come, uh, don't just tell Dan or myself, we'll forget. I guarantee you, we'll forget by Monday what happens on Sunday. Uh, that's just kind of one of those things God does to preachers. By Sunday night, it's all gone a lot of times, whatever people tell us. Write it down. You have a communication card in the book rack in front of you. Put your name on it uh, and uh, how we can contact you, a phone number, an email address, and tell us that you will be coming or if you want more information before making that commitment, let us know and we'll communicate with you. Drop that card in the, one of the offering boxes at the outside of each of these four doors or you can give those cards to Dan or myself. We won't forget that. All right? Okay, thank you for that. We've come to chapter four, the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. He is now beginning to take some of the threads of what he's talked about in the first three chapters and to draw them together and to weave them into a knot, making some applications and completing his thoughts in this letter written from a Roman prison cell to this church in the city of Philippi. Now it's important to remember, we emphasize this often, that the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. But aren't you thankful that what we hold in our hands is in chapters and verses? For how difficult would it be for you to find Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1 if there was no chapter 4 and verse 1? Certainly the words would be there, uh, but these chapters and verses are added for our convenience and for our help in finding our way around the Bible. Sometimes it's unfortunate because sometimes uh, the translators that did that uh, maybe broke up a thought that shouldn't have been broken up. For instance, we talked last week about chapter 4, verse 1, actually completing some of the thoughts 
that he just said in chapter 3. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they are connected to chapter 4 as well. So we will reread verse 1. We finished by reading verse 1 last time. We will start with that today and read through verse 3. Follow along in your Bibles. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God for it. Well, from just a cursory reading of those three verses, there are some obvious questions that come to mind. Who are Euodia and Syntyche? And why would Paul name their names to be recorded in God's word for all of eternity? What was their problem? Who is the one that he calls true companion in verse 2. And who is Clement and the rest of the fellow workers? And what in the world is the book of life? Maybe there are other questions, but those are some of the obvious. Now, we're going to go about things a little bit differently today. Usually, you have a 3, 4, 5, 10, 15 point message from me, right? By the way, those of you that don't know me, there was a bit of exaggeration in that. I can make three points last a long, long time. You don't need 10 or 15 points. But rather than give, giving you a, a three-point alliterated message, I want to walk back through that passage. And I want to amplify it a little bit. When I say amplify it, I don't mean that I want to add to it my words or uh, my ideas. We don't add to God's Word, Lord willing, we don't take away from God's Word. But I want to amplify it, helping you to understand some of these words, what they mean, because our English language is certainly um, uh, not to be compared with the precision of the Greek language, the Greek New Testament. That's why the Lord, in his timing, gave his word, the New Testament gospel message in particular, in the Greek language, which is much more precise, which is much more detailed, in some ways much more colorful, and much less likely to be misconstrued or misunderstood as our language often is. Why in the world, for instance, if you say, well, there's a fat chance of that, or there's a slim chance of that, why do they mean the very same things? But they do, and that's because our English language is really kind of weird to be very And don't consider me unpatriotic about that. So what I want to do is I'm going to amplify these verses, walk back through them, uh, take a few minutes with them, I want to draw your attention to a couple of thoughts, share a few other verses from other locations, and then conclude with an application, all right? So he begins this chapter with the word, therefore. You've heard me say it a hundred times. Anytime you come across the word, therefore, in Scripture, what are you supposed to ask? What is it there for? Why in the world does he say that? You see, therefore, is a concluding statement. What's, what's to follow, therefore, is based on what was said before that. And that's why I said it's a bit unfortunate that uh, chapter 4, verse 1, is separated from chapter 3 because the, uh, the concluding statement of therefore is based on the things that he has just said. In particular, the last two verses of chapter 3 say this. But our, he's talking about Christians, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he is going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And I want to suggest to you that there is no greater statement, no greater promise than you can find after the gospel itself than those words right there. And they are based on the gospel. We are no longer, as Christians, citizens of this earth. We are exiles, pilgrims, strangers, sojourners, even aliens here on earth. We belong to heaven. And as belonging to heaven, we belong to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for him because he has promised to come back. And he's going to take our vile, sin-infected bodies. We've already been cleansed of our sins, but we are still living in a sinful flesh. He's going to change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, and he's going to do that by the very power that raised him from the dead. Therefore, therefore, what? Therefore, my brothers, by the way, that is gender neutral in the Greek language. It should be translated Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, not my subjects, Paul is not calling them his followers, for that would imply some kind of superior role of his own. Instead, my brothers and my sisters of equal rank and equal dignity with me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for. That word love is one of at least three words for love in the New Testament. This is a form of the word agape. It is a godly love. He said, you are uh, the one that I love and I have a strong desire to see you and be with you. I long for you. And then he says, you are not only the ones that I love and long for, you are my joy and my crown. Joy, rejoicing, a continuous theme throughout the four chapters of Philippians. Joy in the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel. Joy and rejoice in Jesus Christ. This is a theme that Christians should live joyful lives. Understand that joy is not the same as earthly happiness. It's not something that, that based on outside conditions, when everything goes right, when you're having a great day, then you are happy as a result of that. I like great days as much as anybody. I, I was happy last night that Arkansas did not get demolished. <laughs> I was. I genuinely felt okay with that. I knew that in that game, which means so much to all of us, amen, that one foot and one motion penalty is all that separated us from victory and defeat. <laughs> Happiness comes and goes, right? With the weather, with whatever outside can do. But joy is not that way. Joy is something that doesn't work from the outside in based on outside conditions, based on outside circumstances. It is something that works from the inside out based on having peace and a right relationship with God. The only way that you can have real joy is to have a right relationship with God. And understand, when he says, you are my joy, he's saying, in Christ, you are my joy. And you are my crown. The word there is the laurel wreath of the one who is the winner in an Olympic Games, who's won the race, who's jumped the highest, the one who wears the victor's crown. He's saying, you are my prize. What is he what is he using that analogy for? Paul is saying that on the day, the day of judgment, 
where every one of us will stand before God, that on that day, the genuineness of the Philippian saints' lives and their faithful testimony for Jesus Christ will be reason for the Apostle Paul to give joy and give rejoicing and give praise to God because it will bring from God God's approval. He is counting on the fact that God is going to say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. God is looking at these saints that are the harvest of his faithfulness and he is going to reward him according, accordingly. The same way that God is going to reward you for your faithfulness and for those that you have influenced for the cause of Christ. And he says, therefore, my beloved, my joy and my crown, and here is the first of two imperatives, commandments of this passage, and the most important, stand firm in the Lord. That's not a suggestion. It's not a wish. It is a command. He's saying, listen to me. If I have any uh, message to give to you today, if I have any authority in the name of Christ to speak to you, and if I would say the very same thing as your pastor, if I have any God-given authority in your life at all, as members of Calvary Church, it is this. It is to be able to say this to you. Stand firm in the Lord. Be constant. Persevere. Even in the face of hardship and persecution. And we can't stand firm without doing it in the Lord. He is our power. He is our strength. It is the only way that we can stand firm in, in the conflict we are in as God's people in this world, the warfare we are in, to do it in the Lord. And then he closes that, that statement with the words, my beloved. And it's a repeat of the very same words when he referred to them and said, I love you. It's the very same word. And by the way, not only is it the word love from agape, a godly kind of love, understand this, that Paul is using the very same word that God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration when out of the, out of the heavens came this voice of God that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Paul is saying, you at Philippi, you are my beloved. I love you as much as I possibly can as a sinful human being, but in the Lord, I love you as much as Jesus is loved by his father. And then it gets to verse 2. I entreat, I entreat, I exhort, I, I urge, I, I beseech, I, I even implore and beg, Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. I love it. These are two women in the church at Philippi. Two women. Here's something, a little interesting, interesting side note. You know what their names mean? Euodia means successful, and Syntyche means lucky. I beg for successful and lucky to agree with each other. Now, I don't know what that's worth, other than the fact that it may speak the uh, worldview of both of their parents. When Euodia's mom and dad, when they uh, were given this newborn little baby girl, one of them suggested, probably the father, we're going to name her successful because if she'll work hard in this life, maybe she'll be successful. And then here was Syntyche's parents who had a very different worldview, perhaps. When that little baby girl was born, they looked at her and thought, man, she better get lucky because that may be the only chance that child ever gets. I, now, I don't know what prompted it. But here was successful and lucky. 
And what did he entreat them? What did he beg them to do? To agree. To, to continually be of the same mind. Now, now understand that, that one Greek word can say all of that. That not just to be like-minded, not just to agree, because all of us would find agreement somewhere, but to continually live in a continual state of agreement. Now understand, this is where Paul begins to pull on one of those threads from chapter 1 and from chapter 2. In chapter 1, he said that I want to challenge you to live in a way different from the world. Stand firm in unity as one body in Christ. And then he followed that up in chapter 2 with the first four verses and says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if there is anything we have in Christ to appeal to, this is what I appeal that you complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying this to the church in general in chapter 2, and he says you can only do this by living in a way so different from the world. You can only do this by counting other people more significant than yourselves. Live supernaturally. Don't live like the world. All those people in Philippi around you, understand, they are seeking for what suits them. They are seeking for what's most desirable for them. That's the way of the world. Taking care of number one. And he's saying here instead, listen, you've got to consider other people more important than yourselves. And then from those verses in chapter 2, he goes right into that hymn of Christ where he talks about how Jesus was willing to leave heaven and come to earth and be a servant. And not only that, but to die a brutal, awful death. And so he's saying you need to be like Christ, be like-minded. Now there's a key truth here that before we go to the next thing that he says, we need to understand this key truth because it's significant. And it is this that Christians at war with each other cannot be at peace with their Heavenly Father. Christians at war with each other cannot be at peace with their Heavenly Father. Now you say, well, I'm not at war with my brothers and sisters, but there's a few people that I sure don't like, I sure don't agree with. I'm sure not going to not going to go out of my way for them. Understand that's to be at war with that person. To know that you have offended others and not sought to make that right. You are sinning against them and against God and you are at war with that person. To be offended by somebody else to be hurt by somebody else, to be on the receiving end of the offense brought by somebody else, and for you not to take the initiative to go and seek to make that right. You are holding unforgiveness and a grudge, and you are not only at war with that person, you're not at peace with God. The New Testament instruction to us whether you are the offended or the offendee, it is your responsibility as a Christian to take the first step. You cannot be at war with someone else and be at peace with God. And so that's why he said, I appeal to you to be uh, of the same mind and to agree and to do it in the Lord. And there is that phrase again. Who is the Lord? It's the one in chapter 2 that he said was given the name that is above every name. 
in the name of the one who is called Lord. That's Jesus. He is the only one. The one all of us will bow to someday. The one all of us will give praise and glory to one day. Even if you are a God-hating, anti-Christian unbelieving person today understand you're going to give glory to God you're going to bow you're going to confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father everybody is going to be level and equal on that day but if you will do that now it makes a difference for where you spend eternity the name above in the name of the Lord the only one through whom we can live this supernatural life of unity to which we have been called. And then he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. That word means my sincere comrade, my fellow laborer. Help these women who have labored side by side with me. That means to aid and assist them. That's the second command of this passage. It's given not to the whole church. It's given to this true companion who is evidently the one who is the spokesperson or one of the key leaders of that church. Aid and assist these women with whom I have labored. We have fought together. We have worked together. We have cooperated vigorously. Help them in the gospel. That is the cause of the good news. The gospel is at stake here. They're, these two women, the fact that they're not getting along with each other, we've got to be careful here because the gospel is at stake. It's in the gospel that we are to find common unity. And he said, not only have they labored with me, but they have labored together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's so interesting that Paul doesn't call them fellow, listen, fellow waiters, fellow watchers, fellow sitters, or fellow listeners. Now, Follow me. This letter is to Philippi, right? But why do we study it? And why is it given to us? Because it's for us also. Would you agree with me there? It's for us. And so as Paul writes to us, Calvary Church, he says, my fellow workers. So if you're in the habit of just sitting at the church, if you're in the habit of just watching the church, if you're in the habit of just randomly attending as it's easy for you, or if you're in the, pro, uh, in the uh, practice and habit of just being a listener, you're not fulfilling your God-given call. If God has saved you, God has saved you to be a worker and to work and to advance the gospel in a local church. And beloved, I love every one of you, but if you're not going to do that here, if you don't feel like you can do that here, go somewhere else where you can because I care more about the gospel than whether or not I see you every Sunday. I love you all. I want you here, but I want you to work with us here to advance the gospel of Christ. Fellow workers, each of us has a specific work to do that God has created us to do, that God has prepared us to do, and that's why he's given us spiritual gifts, and that's why we're studying that on Wednesday nights. By the way, that's 6.30 this coming week. That's another commercial, isn't it? Sorry about that. Now, go back to this imperative, stand firm. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to just be stubborn. I know, I grew up with there's been time in my life that I have stood stubbornly. But that isn't what he's saying here. What does it mean to stand firm? We find this, this statement used in the New Testament at least eight times in regards to six different ways to stand firm. I wish we had time to focus on all of these. They all deserve an entire message. But in 1 Corinthians 16... And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we find Paul telling the church at Corinth to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. That means stand firm in doctrinal truth. 
the truth of God's word. He tells them to stand firm in the faith like men, like fighting men. And that means even for the women to do that. Secondly, we find that he tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, to stand firm for your freedom in Christ. What does he mean, your freedom in Christ? There were false teachers in Paul's day that had gone to the churches in Galatia and had tried to call them back to the legalism aspects of the Old Testament Jewish law and say, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you have got to keep the law also if you really want to get to heaven. And Paul says, stand firm in your freedom in Christ. Don't fall back into the bondage of trying to earn your way to heaven. Number three, in Ephesians 6, he tells us to stand firm in spiritual warfare. Stand firm in spiritual warfare. To stand firm on the day of battle. Then we find in 2 Thessalonians 2, to stand firm in God's word. To stand firm in God's word. That's very akin to standing firm in the faith, is it not? And then we find in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, stand firm in God's grace. In God's grace. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then we find Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 4, saying, Stand firm in unity as citizens of heaven. You see, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul appealed to them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he picks up in chapter 4, and he reaches down and takes that thread and begins to pull it together, stand firm, stand firm again. And he then applies it to helping these women find unity in the faith. Now, Paul calls upon the true companion. We don't know who this is, other than to know that likely he is the key spokesman to the church. All the churches in the New Testament were led by multiple elders, multiple shepherds, multiple pastors. But inevitably there was usually one who was maybe the key spokesman or teacher in the church. But the churches were not led by one pastor. They were led by multiple pastors. So this true companion evidently knew who he was. It was very possibly one of the very men that were with Paul, maybe Silas, when this first church was formed 10 years prior to this letter. And he referred to these two women, Euodia Syntyche, successful and lucky, we don't know anything about these women other than this. Now follow me here because it's just the truth. These are not two on the fringe busybodies in the church. You understand the phrase, on the fringe busybodies. By the way, I'm not looking at anyone in particular when I say that. I'm talking about semi-committed people who just find great satisfaction in finding disagreements, in being offended, gossips. These are not two women on the edge of the church that are just busybodies. By the way, those aren't always women. And all the women said, Amen. Amen. Sometimes it's on the fringe men who are busybodies who are power brokers in the church. That's not who these people are. These two women were faithful, not just workers in the church, they were faithful leaders in the church. Notice how Paul described them. They have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. And they all have their names written in the book of life. By the way, the only other place that term book of life is found is in the book of Revelation. Several times it is a book that says, now listen, listen, 
it is a it says about that book, the book of life, that there were names written in it before the foundation of the world. That before the world was created, before the universe came to be, God had written names in a book. If you were a saved person, your name was written in that book in eternity past. Not just because God knew that one day you would say yes to him, but because God knew that he had chosen you in eternity past, he had predestined you, he had called you out of the darkness and the evil of your sins, and he, by his grace alone, made you to be his child. He gave you the gift of faith, and it is only because God called you that you even wanted or desired to know him, and he put the desire in you, he began to renew and regenerate your heart to make you alive though you were once spiritually dead he gave you the gift of faith for you to offer it back to him the transaction was completed when Jesus said on the cross it is finished it's why Jesus came to make it so and if you are a saved person that your name is in that book now listen if you're not saved if you haven't professed faith in Christ as of yet it may very well be your name also is already in that book. God just hadn't got around to saving you yet. That thrills my soul. Some people say, if you believe in all that predestination business, doesn't that keep you from praying for lost people? Doesn't that prevent you from being an evangelist and sharing your faith? No, it is the greatest motivation of all to pray for people and to evangelize because it is the guarantee, it is the promise that it's going to bear fruit someday, somewhere in living for Christ, in walking together in unity, in being the people of God, in being the church of God, in doing the work of preaching the gospel. We know that it's going to bear fruit because God has already de determined and promised that it would be so. Well, that was free. I didn't mean to go there, but I did. These women were key leaders in the church. And it wasn't a doctrinal, doctrinal or theological problem that led to their disagreement. If it was, Paul would have called it out and corrected it. What did he say to them? Help these women. He said, first of all, I'm begging of Euodia. I'm begging of Syntyche. Get along with each other. Come on now. And this is not so much a rebuke as it is a holy prod. He's exhorting them. Encourage them. He's saying to these women, women, you know better. And he is acknowledging their spiritual maturity just by calling their names publicly, writing it in the letter, knowing that the whole church was going to hear two women being named by the Apostle Paul. It wasn't intended to embarrass. It wasn't intended to shame. It was saying to them, you are mature women, you know better. And it's not because Euodia, you're right, and Syntyche, you're wrong, or vice versa. It's just a, their disagreement was probably over something that had to do with ministry and how to go about it. Neither one was wrong. They just had different opinions. It led to enough of a difference between them that Paul saw it as a risk that it could open up a breach, knowing how the devil worked in this church. And the gospel was at stake. And he's saying, come on now, get it together. You've worked together before. Find the common ground. Come on now, you can do it. Now notice the motivation in this passage. We are to stand firm and agree in the Lord. For the only way that we can live supernaturally is in the Lord, by his power, by his strength. And then he said in verse 3, we are laboring together in the gospel. Notice that prepositional phrase Again, in the Lord, verse 1. In the Lord, verse 2. In the gospel, verse 3. And then also in verse 3, our names are written in the book of life. Child of God, you are in the Lord. 
Stand firm in Him. We are laboring for the gospel in the gospel. Stand firm in that cause. Our names are written in the book of life. That's our assurance. That's our confidence. So why is this idea of unity so important? Why is it so important for churches then and for churches today? Let me give you these statements. You'll have to read these verses later. It's necessary for us to walk and live in unity if we want God's power and anointing in our lives and on our church. I go back to the passage Pastor Dan read to start this service. Psalm 133. Psalm 133. It is there where brethren live together, where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It is there that he says, for the Lord commanded a blessing, even life forevermore. Do you want God to command a blessing on your life? Do you? Do you value that more than you value your job, your careers, your hobbies, your playtimes, your whatever? Do you want God to command a blessing in your life? Do you want God to command a blessing on this church? Be in unity with Him and with each other. Secondly, it is a reflection of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, Son, and Spirit, three yet one. What better way for this church to show the world the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity, than for us to be unified brothers and sisters in the Lord? Not only that, it is the heart of Christ for his people. Unity is what Jesus prayed for the night before his crucifixion in the upper room. John chapter 17. You can read it for yourself. He did not pray for the Father to give him strength. He did not pray in the upper room for this cup to be taken away from him. He did not pray for the church's prosperity, for the church's whatever. He prayed for the church's unity, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. When we are in unity and when we work for unity and we strive for unity, we are fulfilling the prayer request of Jesus on the night before he was crucified. Another truth, it demonstrates what only God's grace can do only what God's grace can do. There is no cause or no group of people anywhere in the world that has the power of God's supernatural grace at work in them other than the church. Other than the church. For God's grace to give us the highest common denominator, that is the Holy Spirit who lives within us, this is why we should walk in unity. And I'll just finish with this statement. It draws people to Christ. It draws people to Christ. Do you want people to be drawn to the gospel and to Jesus through our preaching, through our singing, through our ministry as a church? Unity. Unity is the way that that happens. I've read it to you many times. You've read it yourself from the screen and in the worship guide and perhaps other places. But there is a statement that says this perhaps more clearly than any other place I've ever read it. It's an author by the name of John White, and the book is entitled The Fight. Listen to these words. The church that convinces men that there is a God in heaven is a church that manifests 
what only a heavenly God can do. That is to unite human beings in heavenly love. Great teaching, powerful preaching, superb organization, all have their place. But now listen to these words. But there is nothing on earth which convinces men and women, boys and girls, about heaven or that awakens their craving for heaven like the discovery of Christian brothers and sisters who love one another. The sight of loving unity among believers arrests the unbeliever. It crashes through the barriers of his intellect. It stirs up his conscience. It creates a tumult of longing in his heart. Why? Because he was created to enjoy the very thing you are demonstrating. Father, thank you for the unity of the Godhead. Jesus, thank you for following the direction of your Father. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming to this place sent by Jesus himself. Thank you for the unity you share. I pray that you would create it in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, and in this church family. And I pray that you would use that loving unity to overcome all differences, to draw people to yourself for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.